name's Jamie. If we haven't met, one of the pastors of our church, excited to open up the scriptures this morning with you all. Uh, if you're here with us for the first time or it's been a while, just so that you're tracking with where we are in the Bible right now, we've been working our way since the beginning of the Advent season, late November through Luke's gospel account. We are... Uh, finalized in seven chapters so far. So we're jumping into the beginning of chapter eight this morning, which means that we're about roughly a third of the way through this thing, if that tells you anything about how long we're gonna be in this book of the Bible. But if you have been with us since the beginning, then uh, that should excite you because this has been quite the wild ride, right? Um, This morning, uh, I'll go ahead and invite you to open up to chapter eight. That's where we're gonna be. Uh, This passage of scripture that we are gonna sit with, uh, this is one of those that, Uh, Even up to about three minutes ago, I was still wrestling with. Uh, This is one of those passages that I think it would be fair to say that you could probably preach a half dozen sermons and and walk away impacted in very unique and different ways. And so uh, I'm certainly gonna leave some things off the table, I think, this morning in an effort to try to to preach this, not topically, but as it finds itself in Luke's gospel account on the basis of where we've come for seven chapters now. And so keep that in mind. Uh, Every sentence happens in the the context of a paragraph, every paragraph in the context of a chapter, et cetera, et cetera. And so trying to keep in mind that Luke is seeking to tell a story and we're caught up in that story eight chapters in. And so let me pray for us uh, that, that God would meet us in the scriptures this morning by his grace, by his spirit. Lord, we are desperate for you. We're more desperate than we even know. God, as we sit with a story that Jesus tells this morning with agrarian imagery, what it means, the seed and the sowing of the seed and the soil in which the seed falls, Lord, we come face to face with the reality that we we are not the tillers. We're not the gardener. You are. And so, Lord, I pray by your sovereign grace and mercy that you would, Holy Spirit, till the soil of our hearts this morning, that we might receive your word, whether it be for the first time or the thousandth time, that as an outworking, we might bear a harvest of righteousness that would cause the watching world to look in and to see the beauty of the kingdom of Jesus Christ, that that seed might be multiplied. Lord, would you do that? All I can do is sow and scatter seed this morning. I ask you, God, to do what only you can do by your power, by your spirit, by your mercy and grace. Would you do it now? In Jesus' name, I pray, amen. So as we step into the pages of the the eighth chapter of Luke's gospel account, uh, Jesus's public ministry at this point has begun to attract quite the entourage. As word continues to spread throughout the Galilean countryside and and well beyond that, so that as you pick up in verse one, Luke tells us soon afterwards, that is after the story of the sinful woman forgiven in the house of Simon the Pharisee, Jesus went on through cities and villages proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the 12 were with him and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Kudza, Herod's household manager, and Susanna and many others who provided for them out of their means. Right right on the heels of the story of a sinful woman forgiven, Luke tells us of a group of women, some by name, having experienced the healing and forgiveness of Jesus. 
a very diverse group, as you see, you know, one, the wife of a man who worked for Herod, another, a woman possessed by multiple demons. That's what Jesus does, very diverse work of healing and power. These women invited to participate in Jesus's kingdom work, which was not the standard practice of a first century rabbi as it pertained to women in ministry. But more than that, these women were not only participating, following Jesus, but helping to fund Jesus's mission, providing for the needs of Jesus and the 12 out of their means. Like the women going back to last week, the woman going back to last week who sacrificed her alabaster flask of perfumed oil in the anointing of Jesus's feet. That's just one of the many examples of women who had received forgiveness and healing and had devoted their lives to Jesus and his mission. The inauguration of Jesus's kingdom overcoming traditional social barriers as we see women affirmed in in the redemptive plan and work of God. Which Luke really, he's made that plain to us from the beginning, right? Remember it was Elizabeth who trusted God in her barrenness for a son. It was Mary who humbly submitted to the will of God in her bearing of the Messiah. It was Anna who fasted and prayed in the temple night and day in eager expectation of God's redemption. That women have been an integral part of the church every step of the way, called and gifted in unique ways to help spread the good news. Verse four, and when a great crowd was gathering and people from town after town came to him, he, Jesus, said in a parable, A sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on the rock, and as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. And as he said these things, he called out, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. All right, we've encountered a a handful of shorter parables up to this point in Luke's writing, a parable being a story with a deeper meaning. We've seen the the two debtors and the money lender going back to last week. We've seen the new wine poured into old wineskins going back to chapter five. But, But this is the first major parable in the book of Luke, one that Jesus uses, in fact, to explain the purpose of parables. Jesus must have had his concerns about the crowd that had gathered around him, particularly the condition of the hearts of many of his hearers, because he tells a story that that searches those very hearts, a story in which we all find ourselves somewhere in the imagery so that this story continues to search hearts today. And it's the simple story of of a farmer sowing seed. The seed, as Jesus will go on to say, representing the word of God, the secrets of the kingdom the soil representing the varying conditions of the human heart upon which the seed is scattered. The Palestinian farmer, if you go back to first century Palestine, would carry around a bag of grain, oftentimes over his shoulder or maybe attached to his waist, uh, tossing handfuls of, of seed into the air as he walked the land with the aim of scattering as many seeds as possible into the area that he soon after intended to till. A little bit different than way farming works today. But his hope is that much of the seed would fall into the good soil, the soil capable of yielding a harvest. However, as you would imagine, some of the seed would inevitably fall into less than ideal places, some along the path, 
trampled underfoot, devoured by the birds, some onto rocky ground, only to eventually wither away in the arid conditions, some among the thorns, choked out and unable to bear good fruit. Jesus brings that agrarian imagery before the large crowd that surrounds him, saying, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And then the end of the parable, that's it. As you can imagine, not everyone picked up on the meaning, including those in Jesus's inner circle, which is why Luke tells us in verse nine, and when his disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables so that, and here he quotes Isaiah, seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. The parable communicates a deeper reality or a hidden truth. The misconception, I think, is that parables are, are forever and always meant to make it easier to understand the kingdom of God. But the fact of the matter is, and Jesus says as much here, is that sometimes parables prevent people from understanding. The Puritans used to say, the same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. Now, that's what a parable does. It, is it both reveals and conceals melting the hearts of those with ears to hear and eyes to see, those to whom it has been given by God's grace to know the secrets of the kingdom while hardening the hearts of others in divine judgment, those who Romans 1 suppress the truth by their unrighteousness. Isaiah's prophetic ministry, which Jesus alludes to here, a prime example of a blind and hardened people having rejected the word of truth. Isaiah went out and clearly proclaimed God's word and all that was left in the wake of his ministry was a stump in the felled forest. Jesus goes on to say in verse 11, now the parable is this. Thank you God for your grace in giving us these verses, right? Jesus says the seed is the word of God. And the ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy, but these have no root. They believe for a while and in time of testing fall away. Verse 14, and as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life and their fruit does not mature. As for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. It's been given to, to Jesus' disciples to know the secrets of the kingdom, and so he unpacks for them the meaning of the parable, here explaining that it's a story having to do with, with what the word of God does in the varying conditions of the human heart, declaring that, that whether the seed of God's word will grow and bear fruit depends on where it falls. And while, and this is key this morning, okay, this is where context in terms of what Luke's been doing for seven chapters matters here. While we could say that, that there are four kinds of soil, it's just as appropriate, and I'd go so far as to say more appropriate, to say that there are two. Like the house built on sand versus the house built on rock, chapter six. Or the good tree bearing good fruit versus the bad tree bearing bad fruit. In this case, good soil and bad soil, with the bad soil described in three different ways. 
See, the, the danger of a parable comes in pressing it too much, getting caught in the weeds of detail, all the while missing the forest for the trees. R.T. France, in his commentary on this passage, says this. He says, teachers and preachers sometimes get bogged down in the question of whether any of the first three soils are actually saved, but this misses the point of the parable. In Jesus's ministry, and we've seen this for seven chapters now, there are only two kinds of people, those who accept the message of the kingdom and those who fail to receive it. All three kinds of failed seeds, he says, represent the latter. Authentic faith produces spiritual fruit. The parable of the sower, it's essentially the sermon on the plain, going back to chapter six, in story form, presenting like that great sermon, something of a contrast between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of this world. We, we've seen it in a number of ways. We saw it last week in Simon the Pharisee versus the sinful woman forgiven. Luke just keeps doing it over and over again in different ways, declaring the, the blessing of association with the kingdom of God, the yielding of a harvest in this case, and the curse of association with the other, a fruitless field. That we're either on the the path that leads to life or the path that leads to destruction, the narrow path or the wide path. Our house is either built on rock or sand. It doesn't matter in the end what kind of sand it is. That all three troublesome soils in the, the parable of the sower fail to produce good fruit. They all three represent a house built on sand. Whether it's the, the devil plucking the word from a person's heart like the birds of the air, or a time of testing that reveals a rootless faith, or the cares and pleasures of life like Solomon, choking out what would otherwise be the yielding of a harvest. It's all the cursed soil of faithlessness in stark contrast with the fruit yielding soil of faith. Verse 15, those who hearing the word hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience, Jesus says. Simply put, believing the word of God and living in light of that belief. Philip Ryken in his commentary says, a good heart is not so hardened by sin that Satan can snatch away the good seed of God's word. It is not so shallow that it withers in the heat of persecution. It is not so distracted that it gets choked off by life's troubles and pleasures. Instead, it stays rooted in the word of God and as a result, it bears a bountiful harvest. Again, Jesus didn't come to modify behavior, ultimately. And again, we've seen this for seven chapters now. He's coming after our hearts, the soil out of which the God-glorifying fruit of obedience and modified behavior is born. A harvest of righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees as it works its way from the inside out. Going back to last week, the sinful woman forgiven, extravagant love on the outside, compelled by extravagant forgiveness a debt of love for Christ born out of the debt he paid for our sins. A life of love and gratitude that flows from the forgiveness that's found in him. And Jesus goes on to say, similar to the, the imagery of fruit bursting forth from the soil, that there's also a, a salt and light essence, a shining that happens when, when the kingdom takes root in our hearts. He says in verse 16, no one after lighting a lamp covers it with a jar or puts it under a bed, but puts it on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. Right? A lamp, sure, 
in a Joanna Gaines sort of way, it can be there for beauty, for an aesthetic in the home, but it's utilitarian only in its ability to shine light into darkness. And that's only to the extent that it's rightly used. Right, a covered or, or hidden lamp, it's useless in the utilitarian sense, like a car that forever and all, always remains parked in the garage. In the same way, the word of God must be put into practice. The truth of the gospel must be put to use. The seed must bear visible fruit rather than remaining buried in the ground. Jesus' disciples, they've heard the truth. Now faced with the question of what are they gonna do with it? We just sang it, hide it under a bushel? No, I'm gonna let it shine. As Jesus says in Matthew's gospel account, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works, so that they may see the fruit bursting forth from the soil and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And the good soil, by God's grace, hears the word, holds it fast, and bears fruit. As Jesus will go on to say, the very last verse of this morning's passage, verse 21, my mothers and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. He goes on to say in verse 17, for nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. Right, some scholars believe Jesus is talking about the mystery of the gospel here, hidden in the days of his earthly ministry, later coming to light in the wake of his death and resurrection. Others argue, and I'm inclined to agree with them because it makes sense in the context of what Jesus is saying around this verse, is that he's still talking here, verse 17, about hearing and obeying God's word, that what's on the inside under the soil will show on the outside sooner or later above the dirt. If not before, then most certainly on the day of judgment, a day in which the secrets of people's hearts, the, the conditions of the soil will be revealed for what they truly are. That we stand exposed by the word of Christ and before the word of Christ. There's nothing to hide in or behind. A facade of goodness won't, won't work. Can't just take fruit and, and paste it on because the root's truly dead. It'll fall off eventually. Can't hide behind the fig leaves of our own successes. Jesus has made that plain in his exposing of the scribes and Pharisees, right? That's why it's such good news that going back to Jesus's mission statement that he came to save sinners because we're all sinners desperate for God's grace. And we don't just need God's grace to become followers of Christ. We need God's grace every day as followers of Christ. Jesus says, verse 18, take care then how you hear, for to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he thinks he has will be taken away. It's not a statement about money or possessions. Again, it's a statement about what we do with the word we've heard. The outworking of hearing, receiving, and obeying God's word is overflow. It's a fruit-bearing harvest. Whereas the outworking of ignoring, rejecting, and disobeying God's word is emptiness. It's a dusty, barren field. In the words of one commentator, when it comes to God's word, we either use it or lose it. I got into a, some of you guys know this, a really bad car accident three days before my 19th birthday. Fell asleep at the wheel, shattered my ankle joint into a thousand pieces. No one knew what to do with it. So they brought in someone who was referred to as a traumatologist who basically just does surgeries that nobody else wants to touch. 
And after 10 months in a cast, laid up, I started to use that leg again. But the reality is, after all that time off from moving and walking and exercising, that, that calf muscle atrophied in such a way that it has yet to, to come back in full force to what it once was. The word of God's like that. Those who put the word of God to use like a lamp on a stand, they're given to understand more of God's truth and to, to bear more fruit in keeping with repentance. Whereas those who fail to put the word of God to use like a lamp covered, they lose even that which they think they have. To again quote Philip Ryken, he says, people who put God's word into action grow in Christ and as a result, they are able to learn more and more of his truth. For example, they begin to share their faith, and as they share their faith, they come to a clearer understanding of the gospel, or they begin to give their money to Christian work, and the more they give, the more they want to give, and eventually they learn that everything they have belongs to the Lord and is to be used for his glory. Knowledge builds on knowledge, especially when spiritual knowledge is put into practice. Knowing is by doing, and the more we do, the more we are able to know, on the other hand, if we never do anything with what we know, then we never grow in spiritual knowledge because we really know only what we use. And I wanna be really clear here. This, this is not an argue, argument for justification by anything other than grace alone through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. But where a root of faith exists, the fruit of cultivated Christ-likeness will too exist. James says as much in his writing. That Christianity is most certainly a thinking faith, but it's not just a thinking faith. It's a learning and receiving and hearing and seeing faith that we put into practice. The apostle Paul says as much in his letter to the church in Philippi, Philippians chapter four, verse nine, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Christianity is not a whiteboard worldview, something that can remain in the confines of the classroom. No, it's a, it's a worldview that must be lived out in the everyday. The light of the kingdom ethic shining bright in the hearts and lives of kingdom citizens. The Christian life is a life of believing the word of God and living in light of that belief. That's what it is to be a kingdom of heaven people. That's what it is to be part of the family of Christ which is why Jesus goes on to say in verses 19 through 21, then his mother and his brothers came to him, but they could not reach him because of the crowd. And he was told, your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. But he answered them, my, mother, my mothers and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. Not some randomly included bit of information, these three verses having to do with Jesus's family trying to make their way through the paparazzi. It's a continuation of everything we've been talking about this morning. Jesus is teaching on hearing and putting into practice the word of God, the kingdom, the seed sown in good soil that produces a harvest, the lamp on a stand that shines into the darkness. This, this is not Jesus disrespecting his flesh and blood family, this is Jesus highlighting what it means to be part of the greater family of God, what it is to be a part of the kingdom of heaven. Right, we know, we've seen it, again, for seven chapters. Now, the religious leaders have, by and large, rejected Jesus's message and ministry, having ears but not hearing, having eyes but not seeing. 
while others receive Jesus' word and, and bear the fruit of extravagant love and servant-hearted obedience, like the forgiven woman in the house of Simon, going back to last week. Again, the, ser- the comparison to the Sermon on the Plain, it's striking. As you'll recall, that Jesus closed that great sermon with these words, which sound very similar to verses 19 through 21 of this morning's passage. The end of the Sermon on the Plain, Jesus says, Luke 6, verse 46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. And when the stream broke against it, immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. Both builders, like both soils, having heard Jesus's words, the difference that one builder hears Jesus's words but doesn't do them while the other hears them and does them. Coming back again to the end of this morning's passage, verse 21, my, brother, my mothers and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. Again, Jesus refuses to let us pontificate about the, the various things he's been saying as if we could just sit around and talk about it. The proclamation of the good news of the kingdom, it requires a decision, a commitment. To be sure, the hope of adoption is is ours by grace alone, through faith alone, and Jesus Christ alone, which is why Paul says in a couple of different places, Galatians 4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Ephesians 1, in love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purposes of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Right, the doctrine of adoption declares that we're all spiritual orphans diving into the dumpsters of depravity like Levi the tax collector, like the sinful woman in the house of Simon, like Mary Magdalene with her seven demons. And by his grace, God reached down through the person and work of Jesus Christ and adopted us as sons and daughters. From children of wrath to children of God, deeply loved where there was only once deep separation but for the grace of God, right? And yet, where a root of faith exists by God's grace, as I said a moment ago, the fruit of cultivated Christ-likeness will to exist. From every gospel root comes gospel fruit. The fruit of the field showing the soil of our hearts to be truly alive. See, I think, I think part of the reason people don't want a whole lot to do with Christianity, particularly in the American South, is because the church professes a Jesus my savior, but not a Jesus my king coupled with that, as if you could divorce the two. Jesus is saying, no, the essence of the, the kingdom is forgiveness that, that brings light into the darkness and shines forth the ethic and beauty of the kingdom. The parable of the sower, it searches our hearts. Right? We all find ourselves somewhere in that imagery. 
that I would ask a few diagnostic questions this morning. Is the seed of God's word finding fertile ground in the spirit's tilling of the soil of your heart that you're receiving the word and bearing fruit by God's grace? Is the soil of your heart shallow or are you deeply rooted in God's grace? Are the cares and pleasures of the world choking out the word of God in your life? If you see yourself in any soil other than the good soil, the application is very simple. It's repent and believe. William Cowper, hymn writer, once wrote a poem entitled The Sower, where he captures the essence of this parable, saying, the seed that finds a stony soil shoots forth a hasty blade, but ill repays the sower's toil, soon withered, scorched, and dead. The thorny ground, sure to balk all hopes of harvest there, we find a, a tall and sickly stalk, but not the fruitful ear. The beaten path, he says, and highway side received the trust in vain. The watchful birds the spoil divide and pick up all the grain. But, here's the good news of the gospel. But where the Lord of grace and power has blessed the happy field, how plenteous is the golden store the deep wrought furrows yield. Let he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And for those who are a part of Jesus's kingdom, who have given their lives to Christ, trusted in his rescuing work, having been by God's sovereign grace given to know the secrets of the kingdom, be encouraged in your spreading the seed of the gospel. Be encouraged and emboldened in your scattering of that seed, knowing and trusting that as we sow, God will, by his sovereign grace, bring forth a harvest. There is a good soil in the parable. God's doing something. His word, Isaiah 55, shall accomplish that which he purposes and shall succeed in the thing for which he sends it.